Yesterday we gave a sketch of the life and ministry of Robert Hall Jr. <clears throat> we traced out three main stages in his life. His early life, when it is quite clear that he abandoned much of historic biblical Christianity. And then the crisis that came uh, in midlife, uh, in his 40s, when he was ministering in Cambridge, the breakdown that he had, and what I understand and some others understand to be, and Hall in particular understood to be, his real conversion to Christ. And then his latter years in Leicester and in Bristol, where there were some indications that he was beginning to turn back to the things that he had known from his father and from the other men in the Northamptonshire Association, and men like Caleb Evans, who had been his tutor originally at Bristol Academy. But the fact of the matter was that at no point, and this is my conclusion, I guess there may be people who might challenge that, but my conclusion is that he never, ever robustly defended historic biblical Christianity and preached it zealously, fervently, unashamedly. And he was not decisive. He was not distinctive. And that is the fundamental flaw. There were also flaws in his preaching, which I will come to. And they're not flaws that I have identified. They are flaws that one or two of his contemporaries identified. And that will tie in with what our brother Ted has been saying about application in preaching. I hope I have time to come to that. The overall lesson I think that we learn is simply this. That if you do not preach Calvinism, historic biblical Christianity, if you do not preach it and teach it and live it out, then it will be forgotten, it will be lost to the next generation. Even if you do that, sometimes it is forgotten and neglected. But that is not, in one sense, your responsibility. But your responsibility and my responsibility as a pastor, as a preacher of the gospel, is to preach all of God's gospel. And that is something I do not believe that Robert Hall did consistently. And there are a number of things then I want to draw out by way of exhortation. And I'm, I'm happier today than I was yesterday because I can preach to you today. Uh, yesterday was more of a biographical uh, nature. But I do want to be fair to uh, Robert Hall because there are some positive things that I want to say first of all. What I didn't deal with yesterday was that this man not only suffered that mental breakdown, but he also suffered a life in acute back pain. And his life at least demonstrates this, what can be accomplished even if a man is in constant pain and suffering. Hall endured a lifelong and intense acute pain as a result of renal calculi, kidney stones. And after his death, they adopted a post-mortem. And these kidney stones were not nice, round, smooth things. All of them had arrowheads on them. 
sharp and he was in agony often during his lifetime. He took the painkiller of the day, which was opium, and sometimes he mixed it with brandy. Uh, I don't think that would be a recommended medication today, but it was effective. Now, sometimes there were people like Samuel Coleridge Taylor who, who used opium in order to inspire their poetry. His most famous poem was Kubla Khan, and that was written under the influence of opium. There is no evidence, though, that opium ever influenced Robert Hall. That may be remarkable, it may be exceptional, but he believed that opium was made for him because it relieved him of his pain. But he was deprived of sleep. Sometimes if you visited him, he was lying on the floor or lying awkwardly across chairs, sometimes across dressers, in order to try and relieve the intense and acute pain in his back. It prevented him from writing, it affected his everyday tasks, but he patiently persevered for over 60 years. And he achieved what he achieved despite those things. He quietly submitted to those things. He found that grace was sufficient for him, and he spoke often of the merciful provision of laudanum, opium. Secondly, we need to be fair to him and say, this man lived a godly life. He stressed the importance of piety, as we would stress the importance of piety. I will come back to that matter in a moment because I think he put it in the wrong place. But piety was important, and he was a faithful and pious man. He was upright. He he maintained his moral integrity throughout his whole life. He was eccentric, it is true, but he was serious about the way he conducted himself in public and in private. He was a faithful husband once he was married. He was faithful to his children as a father. He was a man of prayer. He was a man who expressed often his dependence upon God. It's true he possessed a very sharp and sarcastic wit. Uh, He was very frank in his opinions and very hard, as I said yesterday, to argue against. Uh, His father knew that and Andrew Fuller knew that, among others. But essentially he was humble. Despite his fame and his standing in the public eye, he'd never indulged in conceit or in vanity. He was openly friendly to all who shared his godly ambitions and aspirations. He didn't show any real hostility to men like Carey. He supported Carey. He preached at his son's ordination when Eustace Carey was sent out to India. Uh, He maintained friendships with those who did not agree with him and he did not agree with them, but he maintained those kinds of friendships. He also, of course, maintained friendships right across the board because he regarded anyone who lived a pious and holy life, uh, he regarded them as friends that was more important than what their doctrinal convictions might be. But he was devoted to serving God, once especially he was converted. And in a day, our day of moral laxity and sadly repeated ministerial unfaithfulness, and double standards in hypocrisy, 
None of those things could be laid at Robert Hall's door. He was a godly man for seven decades nearly. And the other thing is, whatever he finally believed and whatever he initially believed about the doctrines of grace, we have to say keep the thing in balance because he defended evangelicalism. There was questions about his evangelicalism while he was at Bristol and the Broadmead congregation. Yet when you assess the overall picture in his days in Leicester and then when he returned to Bristol, the last 25 years of his life, he did ardently defend the inspiration and the authority of scripture. I don't think he ever really doubted that. There's no indication that he did, but he always based what he believed, he understood, on the scriptures. He was Trinitarian after 1799. Remember I said yesterday he had denied the personality of the Holy Spirit. He believed in the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ, even though he did not believe in particular redemption. He believed in the necessity of regeneration and sanctification. He opposed some of the key errors of his day, Socinianism, Unitarianism. He was bitterly opposed to that. He opposed hyper-Calvinism. He opposed antinomianism. These were things that were quite prevalent in his day. He stood against those. So we have to be fair to him and say, that's the picture. I don't want to give you a totally one-sided and very unbalanced view of this man. But nevertheless, there are things that I believe we can learn in a positive way, and I want to put them in a positive way, from his life and from his ministry. I've got five or six things, depending on our time. Uh, some are less important, the latter ones are less important, and I want to focus on the key ones. The first key lesson, I believe, is this. Be sure that you are a converted man. Be sure that you are a converted to Christ man. It's interesting, a few years after Hall had gone through that crisis and had become renewed in his heart, he said this, but he made no application of it to himself when he said this publicly. But he was under no illusions about the danger of an unconverted ministry. He said it was the greatest calamity that could befall a church. And he said no one should confuse education, native talents, with genuine piety. That's interesting because it seems to be pointing back to him. But he never said, well, that was true of me. At least he never said that publicly. For men to be in the ministry and unconverted is not an unusual phenomenon. John Wesley, in particular, who had preceded, of course, Hall. Wesley was unconverted when he began his ministry. 
the great Scottish 19th century preacher Thomas Chalmers. He entered the ministry unconverted and was converted, I think, after about five or six years. There have been many others. And I've been coming long enough to this conference, and you, some of you have been coming long enough. We know men who sat where you're sitting and are no longer preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I'm not presuming that everyone who is sitting here is a converted man preaching the gospel of Christ with a sincere heart. Because the reality is there are men who turn away. Now, Hall remained after his conversion in the faith. He departed from Calvinism. He did not forsake the faith. But nevertheless, I believe that what he should have done uh, when he came to the conviction that particular redemption was not something he was going to believe in, I think he should have honestly stepped down. But he did not do so. And that was partly a reflection of the spirit of the age. It seems to me that no one actually seemed to entertain the possibility that Robert Hall was not converted in that early stage in his life. There were men like Fuller and Ryland, his father, who realized some of his doctrines and tendencies and were, were dangerous. They were wild speculations. And the tragedy also was that some of his doctrines and practices were largely set for life during those years when he was unconverted. I do not understand, and I haven't got any evidence one way or the other, why Caleb Evans, who basically took him under his wing and was like a father figure to him when he was a student, and then invited him back to lecture in classics and to preach as an assistant in Broadmead Church. I do not understand why his doctrine and practice was not called into question. Why Hall was not called to account. Yes, he did not make his views public. He kept them privately. But then that had a knock-on effect in his public ministry. But he was never called into question. <clears throat> so it is essential... And then this is the first lesson to learn. It is essential to be a converted man to preach the whole counsel of God sincerely over the long haul. And it is never a waste of time for us to sit down and to make sure that we are that kind of man. That we show that evidence of vital godliness the fruits of righteousness, that we live as those who are savingly joined to Christ, who enjoy union and fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, men who love him, men who are absorbed 
and concerned for the name of God, the kingdom of God, the will of God. We want to see that kingdom advance. We want to live our lives in accordance with his will. We want to labor for the honor and glory of his name. We are those if we are converted then, who enjoy fellowship with God the Father, with God the Son, with God the Holy Spirit. I don't presume upon my own spiritual state, and I will not presume upon yours. And I lay that out then, be sure that you are a converted man. The second thing that I want to say is this. Be personally persuaded, fully persuaded of the biblical basis for Calvinism. Be fully persuaded. I think I quoted Warfield yesterday. The Calvinism is the purest form of evangelicalism. I'm not happy uh, with simply saying Calvinism is the five points. It's more than that, much more than that. Those five points were five answers to five errors. We said that it is really Calvinism is shorthand for the biblical gospel. Andrew Fuller, among others, embraced all of those five points and they spoke of their Calvinism in those terms, which is why I, I have to refer to it in that way. <laughs> As far as I can see, Robert Hall never did embrace those five points. Although, perhaps towards the end of the life, he was drifting back in that direction. But every professing Calvinist needs to be fully persuaded and to continue to be fully persuaded that this is what the Scriptures teach. That this is the plain teaching of Scripture. Because if you are not personally persuaded of the truth of these things, then it will eventually show itself in your preaching and in your ministry. You will not be able to conceal it. Even if you are like Hall, say nothing. You're concealing it, effectively. We have these exhortations, then in these letters of Paul to Timothy. You remember how Paul put it in the first letter, in chapter 4 and verse 16. Take heed to yourself and to your doctrine. Continue in them. And in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. And then in 2 Timothy, in chapter 1 and verse 13, from the passage that we read, hold fast the pattern, the system, the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. Here is Paul, the older man, to his spiritual son, Timothy, the younger man. It's a generation thing. With Robert Hall, his father, son, I don't know whether Robert Hall, father, exhorted his son in these terms. I suspect that he did, but Hall did not hold fast to that pattern of sound words. Hall was not distinctive, 
Paul was not decisive. He did not receive that body of truth from his father or from anybody else and then pass it on. And the legacy of Robert Hall Jr. weakened and undermined the whole cause of Calvinism in and among the English particular Baptists. We said yesterday, and let me repeat it, he did not believe that the differences between Calvinism and Arminianism were of any real significant importance. They were speculative. Metaphysical was the word that he used. But those things are not a matter of speculation, brethren, are they? I trust that you are persuaded. These things are the teaching of the word of God. Robert Hall Jr. despised John Owen. He despised him. Especially his book on the death of deaths and the death of Christ. On limited atonement. There is a story, and I've, I've, I've picked it up several times. I don't think it's a false anecdote. I think it's a genuine thing. He once had a conversation with the Welsh Baptist, Christmas Evans. Christmas Evans was a native Welsh speaker. And he said to Robert Hall, Mr. Hall, I wish that John Owen had written in Welsh. To which Robert Hall replied, I wish he had, then I wouldn't have had to read him. And he went on to say that the works of Owen, and particularly this work on the atonement, was a continent of mud. And he described him as a double Dutchman. Now, I don't know what that conveys to you. I checked it out. Apparently, it was a, a word that came into use in the 16th and 17th century when the Dutch and the English were at war with one another. And it became a way of insulting somebody. It basically means gibberish. So he's saying that John Owen was writing gibberish. He said he was a, confused in his thoughts. There were truisms, uh, he was contradictory, he had no time for him. You remember, he favoured Baxter. Well, if you've ever tried to read any of Baxter's theological works, then you'll probably come to the same conclusion as Andrew Fuller. <laughs> he said, it gave me an intense headache <laughs> trying to plough my way through, especially stuff on justification. I've done it, I agree wholeheartedly with Andrew Fuller. That's confusing. That's tangled. But what I'm saying, brethren, is this. Unless you are personally persuaded of all the truths of historic biblical Christianity, you will be in danger of compromising those truths. You will be in danger of neglecting those truths for your own soul, let alone those to whom you minister. It's interesting that Spurgeon, a few years later, gave a reason why he felt that men fudged when it came to defining their doctrine, why they prevaricated. He says they act and they speak in an evasive manner. He said, is it because they do not really believe these things to be biblical? They do not believe these things to be the teaching of the word of God. So they will not give you a clear, firm, plain answer. 
But we also have to remember, and this is humbling, because we do not believe that any Calvinist should be a proud, boastful, arrogant man. At the end of the day, if you adhere to the purest form of evangelicalism, <laughs> that is something that is the work of the Spirit of God. That's the only reason you believe these things. That's the only reason you are persuaded of these things. That's the only reason you preach these things. You have been taught of God. Brethren, we are all sinners. We have offended a holy God. How many millions of sins have we committed? And yet we have become those who have been loved of God and forgiven through the blood, the sufferings and death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Every one of those sins is enough to condemn us to hell for eternity. Without the work of the Holy Spirit, what darkness, what ignorance, what unbelief would reside in our hearts and minds? Consider your own heart. What spots and stains still remain? What uncleanness, what weakness? Yet streams of grace flow to you every single day to cleanse, to pardon, to enliven, and to strengthen you. As you get older as a Christian, you should be amazed and increasingly amazed at God's predestinating love before the foundation of this world, Christ's coming into this world, dying in our place, an all-sufficient atoning sacrifice, and amazed at the Spirit's effectual and continuous effective work in our hearts and lives. That is the only reason you are in the ministry preaching the gospel of God. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. And that humbles us and puts us in our rightful place. Let me extend that now, saying, having been personally persuaded of the biblical basis for Calvinism, then preach your Calvinism. Preach your Calvinism, the whole counsel of God. Dave reminded us from Acts 20, that verse that Paul had not held back anything, but he had held forth the whole counsel of God. Jude 3, you know, we are to contend earnestly for the faith once delivered to the saints. There are other verses in Titus and Timothy that I will not take time to refer to. I would assume that you are familiar with them. But if you are personally persuaded of the truths of historic biblical Christianity, then you, as men of God, then you must preach those doctrines. So that not only you and your elders and deacons believe those things, but they become increasingly the convictions of the entire congregation. Now back home in the UK, there are far too many churches where the only men who hold to the doctrines of grace are the office holders. They're the only ones who are required, as it were, to agree if the church holds to the 
something like the 1689 Confession of Faith. But I would say that that is not going far enough. You've got to preach it so your people imbibe it, believe it, become persuaded that these things are also true. Because you do not have a confessional church if you only have the elders who believe these things. Now that may take many years. And some of you may be in a position where you are seeking to reform the church and to bring them round to these things. And you will need wisdom in order to do that. But you have a long-term goal, you have an aim. And that is to bring the people to understand the riches of God's grace as they are expressed in Calvinism. But you see, if you are not like Robert Hall, and you're not persuaded that those differences between Arminianism and Calvinism are of any real significance, you are in danger, and in danger of, well, they are not very important mentality, or it doesn't matter that much. As long as people are Christians, it doesn't matter too much. Now, Hall, as I said yesterday, believed that because it did not affect the hope of salvation, it didn't really matter whether you were a Calvinist or an Arminian. I would say, I disagree with you, Mr. Hall, for the simple reason that you are weakening the foundation of people's faith and you are undermining their full enjoyment of, of assurance and joy in God. To know that you have a saviour who is all sufficient, who died for you, lies at the root of our assurance. But if Christ just died to save everybody and put everybody in a salvable state, well then that undermines assurance, it undermines the foundation. It's not the point, is it? Yet it is true. People may have a hope of salvation, whether they are Calvinists or Arminians. But that is not the point. The point is this. The things that we are preaching and defending is God's gospel. It's God's gospel. You remember how intense the Apostle Paul was when he wrote to the Galatians. In Galatians chapter 1. Now the, the whole matter there, of course, dealt with justification by faith. But he said in verse 6, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And as we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. And he goes on then in verse 11. The gospel which was preached to me is not according to man. I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. What Paul is essentially saying is, this is not my gospel. This is not a human gospel. This is from God. And therefore it is not for us to tinker with it, to change it, but to receive it all and to preach it all as revealed truth. If you adopt then a, well it's not that important, stance, 
then you are dishonoring God in the final analysis. So I say to you, brethren, preach your Calvinism. Now, you need to be wise. You don't use Calvinism as a kind of sledgehammer. It's not a battering ram. But as you work your way through books of the scripture, if you preach topically from time to time, then you will deal with these issues. They come up. And they should never be avoided. It is sometimes difficult to know how to preach some of these things. And I would recommend that you read some of Charles Haddon Spurgeon's sermons. Read and reread John Murray in Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Read his chapter on the warrant of faith, on repentance and faith. And check to make sure you are still using, if I may put it this way, the right language, the right way of inviting men and women to Christ. Read him on the free offer of the gospel. It's there in his works. Read him on the warrant of faith, the chapters on faith and repentance. How you preach these things is not something I can deal with in great detail here but I'm saying to you that you need to preach those things and to learn how to preach those things I remember a prominent man he's now in heaven a prominent man in the 70s and 80s in England he said and I heard him I was at a fraternal where he said this don't preach election to the unconverted now I understand what he was saying and why he was saying that but my reaction in thinking through that is if well if I am not to preach election to the unconverted I will never preach election because I've always got unconverted people there in my congregation now I wonder if he'd read Spurgeon's sermon no election no salvation that was an evangelistic sermon in many, in many respects and it is well worth reading that sermon of Spurgeon's there's also a helpful uh, comment by R.B. Kuyper in God-centered evangelism a useful illustration that I've used uh, I'm paraphrasing now but he said you can liken the preaching of the gospel to entering into a house and he says when you're preaching the doctrines of grace you don't try and enter in through the foundations of the house you don't try and find out then whether you are elect or not it's not the elect who come to christ those who know well, they do come to christ it's not those who know they are elect who come to christ you come to Christ because you are a sinner. So when you go through the door, you do not go through the foundations. You don't go to the Father. You go through the door. The door is Christ. I find that a very helpful way of putting things. And you will find that very clearly in Spurgeon. You will find it in John Murray. You will find it in a multitude of other preachers who held to the doctrines of grace. But brethren, you must preach your Calvinism. You are a leader in the church of Christ. You are a teacher. The generation that hears you is dependent upon you 
so that they embrace God's gospel and that another generation of men will be raised up who will preach the same gospel. You want to see the same pattern repeated in Timothy that you do in Paul. You want to see it passed on in that kind of way. You are a servant accountable to God. And you are accountable for the preaching that you undertake throughout your ministry. We've seen that Hall, in his early ministry, did not preach particular redemption and many other parts of historic biblical Christianity. He denied the biblical doctrine of election. He denied the federal headship of Adam, original sin, the imputation of that sin to, his, to Adam's descendants. And I don't believe he was clear about justification and imputed righteousness. I would suggest that those are serious omissions and deficiencies. And even later in his life, they were not as prominent as they ought to have been. The damage had been done in the early part of his ministry. If you put Hall in context, you see that the Calvinism of the 17th century, the Westminster, the Savoy, the Baptist Confession of Faith, that Calvinism was being moderated during the 18th century. And in the 19th century, it was almost extinguished in various stages throughout the British Isles. Especially among those who remained, and I'll put it in inverted commas, particular Baptists who followed Hall. There were a group who separated. They became the strict and particular Baptists, and that's another story. But many of them remained particular Baptists by name, but not by conviction. Remember that Hall was living in a days when Wesley's Arminianism was prevalent and gaining increasing ground. I don't know if you've ever seen what Wesley did to the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Many years ago, the banner reprinted in, a, in their magazine his edition, and it's full of red lines. Ted is smiling. You, you remember, you've seen it. It's full of, he crosses out this, this, and this. It, there's, there's very little left by the time you're finished and that was prevailing and then soon after that came Finneyism from America and Finney was no lover of Calvinism and then later on in the century you had Moody and Sankey uh, but there was a drift away then you had German liberalism and the higher criticism which affected not only Calvinism but the fundamentals of the faith it was all part of a drift it's interesting that Spurgeon, in 1856, when he set up the college in order to train men for the ministry, why did he set his college up? He said, I cannot find anywhere to send my men that is Calvinistic. And that's within 25 years of Hall's death. And among the Baptists, it is interesting that Tom Nettles is persuaded that Robert Hall's attitude made a significant contribution to the drift that ended in the downgrade in the 1880s. 
So if you do not regard Calvinism as primary biblical truth and preach it, then you are in grave danger of, being ne- of it being neglected and it being forgotten altogether. And it can be lost like that in a short generation. And the, to recover it takes more than a generation. Preach it. Preach it with a warm heart. Preach it with a genuine smile on your face. It is not morose. It's not austere. This is the love of God. The eternal predestinating love of God. That is what it is about. Preach it. Preach it in the manner that God has given it to us. Let no one come and accuse you, as Hall did of the Aberdeen Presbyterians, the Scotsmen. Frosty spirited. That will kill anybody's desire for genuine historic biblical Christianity. Moving on then quickly. There's a fourth thing. How can we maintain these things? Well, I would want to argue that we learn to establish and maintain a full confession of faith. The 18th century was increasingly suspicious of creeds and confessions. It was an overreaction to the great centuries of reformed confessions. There were over a hundred of them in the 16th and 17th centuries. But the age became very negative towards them. I dealt yesterday with uh, mentioned John Locke, his huge influence, uh, and particularly upon Hall, he wanted to have an indispensable minimum of belief. I think it it was, if I remember rightly, Jesus is the Messiah. That was basically what he was saying. And that's all you need to say, he said. Confessions then were regarded as schismatic. They created sectarianism, disunity. And they were suggesting that such creeds and confessions went beyond the conditions for Christian fellowship laid down by Christ. They wanted to promote toleration. But toleration of what? (laughs) Error? (laughs) A very dangerous path to go down. Hall adopted much of this. It's why he advocated open communion, which then degenerated into open membership. He was critical of Andrew Fuller. He said he he attached too much importance to the speculative accuracy of sentiment. In other words, he was too much of a Calvinist. That's how I'm reinterpreting that statement. He was too particular about his doctrine. Hall said, character and piety are far more important than a man's creed. What he's essentially saying then is that a man's experience is more important than what he believes and preaches and teaches. Providing a man has been born again, providing a man shows some love to Christ, he lives a holy life, then that is all that matters. I would say it does matter, but it is not the only thing that matters. 
And a man will also be more well-rounded when he has embraced the entirety of God's revelation concerning our salvation in Jesus Christ. Today it is common in this country and in Britain, it's common among evangelicals to promote what I term lowest common denominator, Christianity. By that I simply mean you have a minimal statement of faith. Usually it can be printed out a page or one page and a bit. It's basically one or two sentences under the main heads of theology. But it can be interpreted any way. You can be an Arminian and sign it. You can be a Calvinist and sign it. It's not promoting historic biblical Christianity. There's a lack of precision. There's a lack of distinctiveness. And it's done in the interests of unity. But what happens in the interests of truth? This is God's gospel. It has always puzzled me why in this generation men want to confess less biblical truth than our forefathers did. That's always puzzled me. And no one has been able to give me a satisfactory answer to that when I've challenged them. They go away with their tail between their legs because they haven't got an answer to that. Why would we want to do that? It's God's truth. It's God's gospel. Confess it all. Preach it all. Live it out. Hall's age, sadly, was marked increasingly by a a spirit and a loss of doctrinal consciousness. Joel Beakey said, if you abandon confessions of faith, you are committing yourself to a mindless and spineless Christianity. You will drift like jellyfish and never swim against the tide. Many of your heads are nodding in agreement. You see that. You believe that. You're persuaded of that. But you see, these men like Robert Hall, they downgrade creeds and confessions and they make their own system up. That is their creed. They have a creed. They have a confession of faith, but it is not a full confession of biblical truth. You are saying, in effect, there are some things that do not matter. Now, back home, there's, it's common to divide truth up into primary and secondary truth. I don't buy that distinction. Because in that secondary truth are some of the doctrines of grace, election. Primary truth is meant to be that truth which is essential to salvation. And the Trinity, the atoning sacrifice of Christ, regeneration. I don't find that distinction helpful at all. I don't know whether it has a status here in the USA, but it certainly has a status in the UK. I think it's long-term, I think it is disastrous. It's spiritual myopia, short-sightedness. It's very interesting that in 1832, a year after Robert Hall died, There was a new union of Baptists 
which eventually became the Baptist Union as it is today. A few years before, in 1815, the particular Baptists had got together and tried to organise a union of particular Baptists. It didn't work for a number of different reasons. But in 1832, a new union of of Baptists was drawn up and its foundation was in one sentence. It was based upon those sentiments generally denominated evangelical. Nothing was defined. It was as vague and as general and as broad as that. You could define it however you wished. That was tragic. It was disastrous. Now, confessions and creeds are not infallible. And even if your church adopts the 1689 Confession of Faith or something compatible, that does not guarantee that you will stick with it. And for following generations will stick with it. Churches and individuals fall into error. But confessions and creeds of faith are neglected at our peril. Some of you will remember our friend Dr. Bob Martin, and he wrote a superb essay in Sam Waldron's uh, exposition of the 1689 faith on the importance and use of creeds and confessions. He gave four things for maintaining confessions, a useful means of publicly affirming and defending the faith. It's a public standard of fellowship and, and of discipline. It's a concise standard to evaluate ministers of the gospel. And it contributes, fourthly, to the sense of historical continuity. All of those are important in one way or another. If you've not read that, go and read it. It's well worth it. Now, my time is really up. Uh, Can I make one more point? Okay. I think this is important, and here it ties in with our brother Ted, because... We need, as we preach these things, as we preach the word of God, we need to preach to the needs of our people and to their conscience, to their minds, their wills, and their conscience. Now, none of us have the eloquence of Robert Hall. Of that, I'm fairly confident. I've heard many of you preach live and on, the, and on sermon audio, I don't think anybody here is comparable to Robert Hall. I told you yesterday he was an oratorical phenomenon. And there was this evidence of congregations hypnotized by his oratory and his eloquence. But there was a serious weakness in his preaching that was identified by a man called John Foster. And he wrote about it, and I think it's in the American edition of Hall's works. John Foster had been a regular hearer of Hall in the latter years of his life, particularly in Bristol. So he heard more than just the occasional sermon that we have available to us printed. He heard this man week in, week out for a number of years. And what he said was essentially this. Robert Hall, in his preaching, failed to connect with his hearers. There was a lack, a tendency, not always, but a tendency to a lack of application. And one of the main effects of Hall's preaching was admiration and applause. 
people would go away and say, wow, we have never heard anything like that ever before. Now, to be fair to Hall, he never preached to promote himself. He was oblivious in that regard. But people went away impressed by his oratory and by his skills. And Foster said there was a tendency in him then to be too general, too theoretical. That was something that anonymous critic had said immediately after his death. I quoted that yesterday. He allowed, by doing this, he allowed his hearers to remain spectators. They were never drawn in, sucked into the preaching of the word, so it affected their minds and their hearts and their consciences. Now, it is not true of every single sermon that he preached, but it is a general tendency. Now, Foster attributed that to his natural cast of mind and what he called an addiction to prolonged speculative studies and concern with rhetoric. The unconverted then could come, they could hear, and they would leave unmoved, apart from the fact that they were basically applauding him and saying, wow, what a marvellous preacher. This is what Foster said. I don't like living, giving too long of quotes because they're very hard to follow when you're on the receiving end, particularly towards the end of a lecture or a sermon. But his preaching, he said, did not bring and keep the people under a disciplinary process. It allowed them too much the privilege of being spectators of a fine and well-ordered series of representation of such a nature that they can look on, look on at ease. And then he went on to say, there is a sad catalogue of the perversities and deceits of the heart. And he says... Hall never addressed these kinds of things in his head. It was up here somewhere, in the realm of rhetoric and display of logical reasoning. So he didn't descend to deal with the perversities and deceits of the heart, the distortions and presumptions of prejudice, the principles which in disguised form, perhaps, and afraid of audacious avowal, but of malignant essence, reacting against the divine authority. He did not deal with the subterfuges of insincerity, the various ways in which men evade conviction, falsify in effect the truth to which they assent in terms or delude themselves in their estimates of their own spirit and conduct. There is the estrangement from reflection, the extreme reluctance to honest self-examination. There is also in the majority of any large congregation many of those who make a direct profession of personal religion not accepted an indistinct apprehension and lax application of the principles and rules of Christian morality. In other words, he didn't come down to that level and deal with those things. And later on, he said, with regard to preaching to God's people, he said, let me take the subject of Christian happiness. Hall, he said, could describe it in glowing and exalted terms. Speaking of enjoying confidence in God's favor, the superiority of the happiness of the cares and distractions of life, yet it left some of his hearers high and dry, left them in distress, even dismissive and contemptuous of such happiness because it was not part of their experience and they did not know how to obtain that happiness in their circumstances. 
Foster said, some of those to whom he preached were harassed without the possibility of escape. They were harassed by the state of their worldly affairs, perhaps suffering, dreading disasters beyond the reach of prudence to prevent, anxiously awaiting a critical turn of events, vexed beyond the patience of Job by the untowardness, selfishness or dishonest honesty encountered in their transactions. Some of them were enduring the cares and hardships of poverty. Some are distressed by a bad disposition among their nearest kindred and friends, perhaps by anticipations, grievous in proportion to their piety of the conduct and ultimate destiny of their children. And he mentions gone further on, further on, the loss of loved ones, those battling with the presence of good and evil in their lives, those who are backslidden, those inclined to depression, those depressed by moral evil around them. He explained, Foster explained, how much more helpful it would be if the preacher dealt with those kinds of issues and showed how Christian happiness could be found and enjoyed in the midst of those realities. Apply the word of God to the people to whom you preach. That's an important lesson then that we learn from Mr. Hall. Remember the Apostle Paul, and with this I will close. The Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians, in chapter 2, having said in verse 7, we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. He then goes on in, say, in verses 10, 11, and 12 to say, you are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly, and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory so brethren we need to preach our Calvinism but we need to preach it in such a way that it comes home to the hearts and lives and consciences of our people and addresses them in their particular needs. That's the work of a true pastor. There are other things that I could mention, but I will stop at that point. My time has really gone. But thank you for your patience. Amen. <laughs>